We're going to look to our Lord together now in prayer. And Father, we're coming to you. We're coming to you with a tremendous sense of thankfulness for what Jesus Christ has done. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. You raised him from the dead. You seated him at the right hand. He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. So, Father, what we want to do is to see how the dynamic in this book of Acts relates to 2019 on into 2020 living. We're praying, Father, that through it all, we're going to be able to say that we are honoring you, living for you, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is all about you. So these moments to come are important. So what we're praying now is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. It's again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. Praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember in the chapel at Trinity when I was back working on my master's degree and that Dr. Joe Aldrich from Multnomah had arrived on the scene and he had just written a book entitled Lifestyle Evangelism. Great book. Got it. And as he was opening up his message, he did so by offering a story that's found in the opening pages of that book. And it goes like this, that there's a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on earth. Even in heaven, he bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly from men down there. I did, he said. And, continued Gabriel, do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh, no, said Jesus. Not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. And Gabriel was perplexed. Then what, then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them, he asked. Well, Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, and John, a few more friends, to tell other people about me. And those who are told will in turn tell us to other people. And my story will spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. And ultimately, all of humankind will have heard about my life and what I have done for people. And Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical. And he knew well what poor stuff humanity is made of. And so he said, yes, he said, but what? But what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? Haven't you made any other plans? Don't you have a plan B? And Jesus answered, I have no other plans. I'm counting on them. So he's counting on people like people of the church, of free church here. Sheboygan County. He's counting on us to be his witnesses. And you're going to find that to be the key idea here in these verses, because in verse 8, you and I are told, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And what's interesting is that the word witness is the word we get martyr from. In other words, somebody's going to have to be passionate enough to be willing to die for the sake of what they know to be true. True. 
And that's what the witnesses in the early church were all about, the martyrs. And so you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we're going to be dealing this morning with that key idea of the word witness. And what I want to do with you now is to draw three significant perspectives that I think are found here in these verses. Serve as an introduction to this entire series that I think will equip us to be well prepared to do what God is calling us to do. Witnesses. And out of verses 1 through 5 is the first, because as witnesses for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as it appears on the screen, notice first of all here in these five verses, to start with, the proofs that God has offered. The proofs about who Jesus Christ is, the one who died for our sins and was raised on the third day, the proofs that he has to tell you and me he is who he said he is and did what he said he would do and therefore will do what he said he will do. And it all begins to unfold here when you begin to read in the first book, O Theophilus. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And you say, but Gary, the first book, what do you mean by the first book? Well, glad you asked because, you see, the official understanding of the book of Acts is that this is really volume two. Volume one was the gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Luke. And volume two now is the book of Acts. So this is a continuation of volume one. So when you read in the opening verses of Luke chapter one, in particular verse three, where Luke identifies the recipient of his writings as excellent Theophilus, who was most likely a Roman official, would be used by God then to disseminate and to share more and more of the information that's found here in the book of Acts so that people throughout Rome would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what we have here when he says, with regard to this whole matter, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Theophilus, I know. It's the most Theophilus book, Theophilus name you've ever heard, right? Well, here you have it here. He was actually uh, an official governor within the Roman Empire. And evidently, Luke, who's a physician, and you see in your insert this morning here that most likely Luke got his medical training from one of three sites where universities were established that had some form of medical training in the day and age, including Athens, of course. Well, he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what I want you to see here is that it says the word began. Now, you say, but Gary, I know that in the book of John, it says that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. How do I reconcile that then? The whole idea that all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, here's the thing. What Jesus Christ did in terms of salvation is finished. Nothing can be added to. Nothing can be subtracted from. We are not saved on the basis of our supposed good works. We are saved exclusively on the basis of Christ's finished work. So when we talk about what Jesus began to do, what we're doing now is we're talking about the spread of the gospel, where Jesus is now taking that group of Jewish Christians at this point, and he's empowering them with the truth of the fact Jesus died for our sins and on the third day was raised from the dead. And now you're going to have to take that information and begin to disseminate it and share it with other people. 
And so now this is exactly what Luke is doing at this point. As he has penned volume two of his writings, and Theophilus has now got it in his hands, and Luke has strategically identified somebody who's going to be able to move this forward quickly. Now, what you need to do, and I need to do likewise, is to identify who in our relationships can take the gospel of Jesus Christ and move it quickly. He found somebody who is going to be a person of influence. He would begin to share the significance of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The first book of Theophilus. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Stories told of Da Vinci. Started work on a large canvas in his studio. Worked at it. Developed it. Chose the subject. Chose the perspective began to apply the colors. He had his own genius at work. But then all of a sudden, he stopped. Stopped. And then he summoned one of his students forward, put a paintbrush in his hands, and told him to continue on. And we're told that the student said, I'm unworthy. I can't complete this painting. But Da Vinci, evidently, according to the biographer, silenced him and said, Quote, will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? Unquote. Now, what we see at this point is that the physician Luke is taking all that Jesus Christ has done. And now he inspires you and inspires me to begin to communicate this to other people. So now you say, and what is it that he has done that I need to communicate? Read on. You're up to verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. They didn't choose him. He chose them. But now get this in verse 3, and this really stands out to us. He presented himself alive. So now they are being given resurrection proof, resurrection evidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He presented to them himself, alive to them, but when? After his sufferings by many proofs. Which means that it's that 40-day period subsequent to the resurrection, but prior to the ascension, in which he takes somebody like the disciple Thomas in that upper room and says, check out my hands. And then Thomas is gripped with the fact that he has been given proof and evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is, in fact, exactly who he claimed to be. You and I have to find ways, then, to be able to establish a connection with people so they understand through the offering of proofs of Christ is, what Christ has done, and then they'll have a longing, likewise, to be part of that movement of knowing Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. I thought about that. Um, former professor of mine, S. Lewis Johnson, once told the story of a Hindu man who came to a, an Indian pastor in the Indian Christian church. And I'm reading it out from him. He had unaided received the scriptures, read them through to the degree it was possible at that point. And the story had fascinated him as a Hindu. And finally he came to the Indian Christian pastor and he said to him, in the light of what I've read, I've become convinced of the truthfulness of it all. 
and this is what he then said, I must belong to the church that carries on the life of Christ. Now, this is exactly what Luke is challenging his readership to do. And so you're presenting in such a way where in conversational form, you're providing proofs and evidences of who Christ is, very relational, conversational manner. I say, Gar, how do I go about doing that? That's what the book of Acts is going to be all about. Let's use a simple illustration. I was uh, overseeing counseling at a Graham crusade, and at the end of the crusade, people began to come forward, and there was a Hindu man that was coming forward, just like this story I've just told you about. Well, some of the counselors pointed the man in my direction, so he came my way and began to talk. And the thing about people who are caught up in Hinduism is that you look for the things, the ideas, the things that they're passionate about, and you use that as your starting point, what I call your on-ramp. We'll talk about that a lot in this series. Got to learn your on-ramps and your off-ramps, what I'll call the highway of conversation. And so anyways, I began to talk with the man, and he said this was all very enlightening. And I captured in my mind that word, for you see, in Hinduism, the concept of light and illumination is gripping. It's important. And so I said to him, illumination is very important in Hinduism, isn't it? And he said, oh, yes, and this is a physician. He began to talk about spirituality and the whole idea of the enlightenment of the cosmos, he was very ethereal in what he was saying. He was very global in his perspective. And he was very caught up in illumination and all aspects pertaining to light. And so I said, you've listened to Mr. Grab now. Now, I want you to ponder this. There was one who said, I am the light of the world. A very exclusive term. A definite statement. As somebody who values enlightenment, would you be willing, are you open? And now that's a key idea here in the culture of tolerance. Are you open to considering the absolute claim that Jesus Christ says he is the light of the world? Now, because I knew something about Hinduism's values, I use light as my on-ramp in the conversation. But once you get on what I would call the conversational highway, you're going to have to be, once you've gotten on the highway, able to shift lanes. You want to be able to get into the express lane as quickly as possible. So you shift from local into the express lane because you don't know how much you, time you have with that person. And you talk about the things that they can connect with, but you want to stay focused on Jesus Christ. And then when they seem to have reached a point of capacity, you've got to find your off-ramp so that you don't overdo it. You give them enough to get them thinking about what matters most in life. This is what I call the on-ramp, off-ramp approach to the conversational highway of evangelism. Now, at this point, this man had already heard from the outstanding message of Mr. Graham of what Jesus was all about, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. What God had done through this man at that point was that he took a very strategic man back to the setting this man came from, and like Theophilus now, he would have to take the proofs that Jesus is the light of the world and begin to share it in his own culture, in his own ways, with people who need to be able to understand something similar. And so now you and I need to look at our conversational highways. 
Learn what's the on-ramp. Determine when it's time to get to the off-ramp. Note how to shift lanes. Get into that express lane, but keep everything moving forward towards Jesus. You're on your way. And so you're at verse 3 now, and he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, like Jesus did with the apostles, like Jesus did in particular with somebody like Thomas, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about, speaking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a very critical thing. The kingdom has both spiritual as well as what we'll call physical aspects. The physical side of it all, or if you want to call it the material side of it all. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We're told in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. A kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. You're going to want to tie that to Jesus' conversation then with, with Pilate. Are you a king? And tie it to the spiritual dimension, where it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, with regard to the whole idea of the kingdom, or uh, the physician said in volume 1, in chapter 17, verse 21, the kingdom of your God is within you. So now you've got both a spiritual and a physical dynamic happening here at this point, and it takes you right back to that incredible conversation that Jesus Christ was having, of course, with Pilate, when Jesus is having to deal with Pilate's questioning, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. From this world. Now, here's the deal. Pilate is very caught up in kingdom thinking, so there's your on-ramp. Pilate is a defender of Caesar and all things pertaining to the Roman Empire, and so he's a political thinker. Now, then your on-ramp is going to have to be, if you're dealing with somebody who's got a very politicized view of life, you're going to have to get them to Jesus and help them to understand historian writes this about the matter of the kingdom concept. When the Roman Empire was in its heyday, it was a huge kingdom that just kept getting bigger. The Caesars continually sent out their armies to take new territory. And when a new territory came under Roman control, the Romans would use force to try to make the new territory as much like Rome as possible. And they would build Roman temples and institute the Roman religion, which involved the worship of Caesar. And they would even build Roman barns. They would do anything they could to make the territory just like Rome. And the question is why? Here's the answer. They did it so that if Caesar ever came, he would feel right at home because the territory was his home. Now, what we want to do then at that point is to help that person understand what God is doing. He has entered into this world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, died for our sins. And so Jesus chose the idea of kingdom as his on-ramp to carry on a dialogue with Pilate. And you choose your on-ramp, you get into the express lane, and you move to the 
off-ramp, and you continue to communicate the truth. So now, you're up to verse 4. And in verse 4, you want to see how relational Jesus is? Well, in verse 4 at this point, what you and I are told here, that while staying with them, he invested in them. When you are with people, you're not wasting time. You're investing time in things that matter most. But you want to make your conversations connect. Talk football in the coming days. Try to figure out which football players love Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then move that conversation along. and Enjoy the game, but at the same time, at the end of the game, you've already got something going. You spent time with them. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, you see, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And what's the promise of the Father at this point? Well, the promise was that the Holy Spirit was going to be coming their way, which he said, you heard from me. And you can read about that, of course, in John chapter 14 and 15, those particular sections in the Gospel of John. For John baptized with water, and Jesus could attest to that because Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist. But you, speaking now to these Jewish Christians, and that's not an oxymoron, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And what is he talking about at that point? He is talking about Pentecost, which is described in Acts chapter 2. So now, he's offered proofs. He's offered evidence. You choose your on-ramp. You choose your off-ramp. You try to get into the express lane. You communicate in terms of the evidences like this Hindu physician needed what mattered most in his case, illumination, talking about things of enlightenment because that's valuable in that culture. But get them to be enlightened over who Christ is, the light of the world. If it's political, notice how Jesus handled Pilate. If it's sports-related, thinking about then the Christian's those that have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, draw it out. You've got a way to work with this then. So as witnesses of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're noting first of all here the proofs that God has offered, found in verse 1 through 5. But now you're ready. Now you're ready for a second perspective. And it comes out of verse 6 down through verse 8, that as witnesses for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, note second of all the power that God has provided. He has equipped you. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he has empowered you with words, with a testimony, with a sense of what Jesus Christ has done on that cross. Look at what happens next. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, and this is so typical for those that are very futuristic in their approach to what's coming next in life, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, they're very politically oriented. They are a little weary, you see, of the fact that Rome has had the upper hand over the Jewish population. Now, can we get back to the glory days when David was king, back to the realm in which Solomon had expanded the kingdom of God, politically speaking? And lo and behold, notice here what Jesus says at this point. He said to them, it's not for you. You're, you're trying to figure out your ETA here, your estimated time of arrival. It's not for you to know times 
or seasons. The Father has fixed by his own authority, not by the church's own authority, as to when Jesus should return. Now, people have gone a long ways of trying to figure out and fix the time in which Jesus Christ will arrive, their own sense of ETA for Jesus. It, what's not always known is that even Columbus got caught up that, with that. He wrote a volume called The Book of Prophecies in which he had calculated that the world would come to an end in the year of our Lord, 1656. He even states very definitely that there, quote, there's no doubt that the world must end in 155 years, unquote. Christians have a way of shooting themselves in the feet when they begin to become dogmatic about such things that only God can be dogmatic about. God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. So he creates that added expectancy of Christ's return, keeps us on our toes, and reminds us we better be ready, but in the meantime, we've got to be fully prepared, and we've got to be telling others about Jesus. And about that, Jesus... Well, you're up now to verse 8. And here's where you're combining now the proofs of 1 through 5 with the power of 6 through 8 because the power is not wasted. The power is invested in you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because here it comes at you in verse 8. You, he says to these Jewish Christians at this point, and then expends, extends outward to us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which we'll get to in chapter 2. But then what I want you to see in the following is the progression. You will be my witnesses, not merely witnesses, my witnesses. Notice now the progression. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. It starts with Jerusalem. This is the operating principle, this one verse, for the entire book of Acts, as you see in your insert, because chapters 1 through 7 speak of being witnesses in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 deal with being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And beginning in chapter 12, on through the end of the book of Acts, you're dealing with being witnesses to the end of the earth. So he starts with Jerusalem, and let's remind ourselves that we can't simply embrace what others might sometimes say from pulpits, um, witness in your own Jerusalem. Start with your own Jerusalem. There is one Jerusalem, people. It's, it's in Israel. Okay. As a matter of fact, Sheboygan County is the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and onto the ends of the earth. And so we have to accept the fact that we are positioned here in Wisconsin, the ends of the earth, in the description that, that Luke is describing at this point. He wants us to see the historical progression, which is chapters 1 through 7, what Jerusalem is all about. Then you get to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 and onwards, you see, through 11, until you get to the ends of the earth approach of 12 through 28. This then becomes your operating principle of the way in which God goes about doing it. And as you embrace this, there are three key words that I want to draw out for you that I think are significant and highly important. 
A close pastoral friend of mine, Dr. Kent Hughes, has written several volumes of books, commentaries, and he says that there are three significant ways in which we can be highly impactful in our witness. They come from Greek words. The first is logos, it's the word of God. The second is ethos, the way you live your life before God. And the third is pathos, the passion you have for God. All three need to combine in the way in which you are having impact upon the culture, upon the people that are around you. And so when you've got logos, ethos, and pathos operating in your own way, in your own approach to life, you're going to have high impact upon those that God's placing in your path. Now, we have used the metaphor of the highway, but we should also use the metaphor mathematically of concentric circles, you see, because we can't stay in our smallest circle. The approach of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts is that we develop concentric circles of dynamic, of logos, ethos, and pathos, so that more and more people are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Becky Pepper would put it, out of the salt shaker and into the world. And so we can't find our little holy huddle and stay put there in our salt shaker and feel comfortable when God wants to sprinkle this salt out here and there and everywhere and the logos and the ethos and the pathos have got to converge in such a way that no matter what your profession is or no matter where you're at educationally right now, you've got something to say and your, your circles are expanding. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. George Whitfield was already preparing to speak in Edinburgh, Scotland. A man's on his way to the church to meet up with a few other people and then head off to the fields. Ironically and surprisingly, the man was David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, an incredible skeptic, brilliant skeptic. And surprised that seeing him on his way to hear Whitfield, the great evangelist, the man said, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. David Hume replied, I do not, but Whitfield does. David Hume was so captured by the logos, ethos, pathos of Whitfield and the way he presented the gospel. And what people in your circles need to sense is the logos, ethos, pathos that so grips the way in which you live your life. When that's happening, and you've dealt with the proofs of verses 1 through 5, and you've connected it to the power of verses 6 through 8, and you and I were ready for the third perspective that comes out of verse 9 through 11. Thirdly, the promise that God has made. And you say, well, Gary, let's point out the promise. Can we do that? Well, beginning with verse 9 now, after Jesus has ended with this phrase, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. After that, and those are his final earthly words. And last words count. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. For you physics majors, God is sovereign, you see, over gravity. He created gravity. And so as Dorian is approaching 
in Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy, however you've known it through the years. What's fascinating is the liftoff of life. And so here's the sovereign one now, second member of the Trinity, and a liftoff is beginning. Can you imagine how dramatically impactful it is that the very last words that he has delivered at this point, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts, you are my witnesses, and then, and then elevation happens. And they're watching, and they're beholding, and two men stood by. And in courts, it would take two men to be able to ascribe evidence of something that would have occurred when proof is needed. So these opening verses are about proofs and power and promise. Two men stood by in white robes, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Question. This Jesus, see how personal it is? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way. There's your promise. Notice that he will come in the same way, not a different way. And you say, Gary, what does that mean then? It means that as he was lifted up into the clouds. He will return in the clouds in Matthew 24, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Speak of that very thing. And just as there were clouds that covered the temple at the time of Solomon, as the temple was being dedicated, it was the Shekinah glory of God, as the Hebrew word would describe it. Well, just as he was lifted up and utilizing the metaphor of the cloud in the very same way, what we are told here will come. He'll come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And what does this mean, Jesus then ascending? Well, it means that heaven is a real place. It requires them, his physical presence, to be able to house him. And furthermore, the ascension of Jesus Christ also draws our attention to his present work in which there's the sending of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, there is the intercession for his people. And it also means, thirdly, that he has gone to prepare a place for you. For he said, where I am there, you may be also. There are three reasons right there I've just given as to the whys behind the what's of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And now you've connected the proof that God's given you, the power that God has given you, the promise that God has given you, and now you are gripped with the fact that he has chosen to ascend right at the point of time which we are told, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And then the ascension occurs. What a dramatic means by which God wants to grip our attention as to why we're here and not having been already taken home, once we came to know Christ as Lord and Savior, we're to be his witnesses for his glory. Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Well, Jesus said, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few more friends to tell other people about me. 
And those who are told will in turn tell still other people. And my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe until ultimately all of humankind will have heard about my life and what I have done. And Gabriel frowns, and he's looking rather skeptically. And he knows what poor stuff we're made of. Yes, he said, but what if Peter and James and John grow weary? And what if the people who come after them forget? Haven't you made any plan, other plans? Don't you have a plan B? And Jesus answered, I have no other plans. I'm counting on them. He's counting on you. Let's stand together. He chose a very dramatic way to make a powerful statement. Defying gravity and ascension into heaven. Right after saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Help us to understand the significance of the ascension occurring right after those words are uttered and what that means for us. And that you've given us the proofs. You've given us the power. You've given us the promise. We are gathered to be scattered out of the salt shaker and into the world. All for your glory and honor. Show us what that's going to look like, whether it be at the fair today or tomorrow, at work, Monday onwards, in the neighborhoods, and through it all. We want to bring this perspective to those who need Jesus. And we'll give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.